of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Jeremy Hodgen. Jeremy is a Professor of Mathematics Education Researcher at UCL Institute of Education. He is also the co-author, along with former podcast guest Dylan William, of Mathematics Inside the Black Box and the co-creator of the iCAMS project, amongst many other things. Now, I have known Jeremy for many years, having interviewed him back in the days of the Tez Maths podcast. And when I was lucky enough to sit in on a session he delivered with another former podcast guest, Colin Foster at BCME, about teaching low ability students, a definite area of weakness of mine, I had to get him back on the show. So in a wide ranging conversation, Jeremy and I discussed the following things and plenty more besides. Why did a classic came lesson on roofs go wrong and what did Jeremy learn from the experience? Why was Jeremy at first sceptical about formative assessment and what changed his mind? Why does Jeremy feel that the teacher has a key role to play in motivating students above and beyond the mathematics itself? What is ICAMS and where do these activities sit in the explicit instruction inquiry spectrum? What were the big takeaways from Jeremy and Colin's project about teaching low ability students? When should teachers just tell students things? Why are fingers so important in a mathematical sense? What is Jeremy's understanding of the evidence into setting versus mixed attainment classes? What's Jeremy's view on relevance in mathematics and what role do ladders have to play? What is an example of something important that Jeremy has changed his mind about? And finally, what does Jeremy wish he'd known when he first started teaching that he knows now? Now, I found this conversation fascinating. Recent episodes of the podcast seem to have fallen into one of two camps, explicit instruction or inquiry-based learning. I'm not sure whether the ideas Jeremy talks about lie somewhere in between or somewhere completely different, and I'll leave you to be the judge of that. But I'm going to return to reflect upon this as well as diving deeper into my experience with one of the ICAMS activities in my takeaway at the end of the show. Two quick plugs before we crack on. If you're interested in reading about 12 years of maths teaching mistakes, and I'll tell you what, I admit a load of new ones in this interview, then maybe take a chance on my book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths, available from all good and evil bookstores. And if you have read the book and you have time to give it a quick review, that will be absolutely ideal. So long as it's a good one, of course. And if you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service or event to thousands of some of the most intelligent, engaged, connected podcast listeners in the whole wide world, then I am now offering the opportunity to sponsor episodes of this podcast. Just drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com. There'll be a link to that in the show notes to find out about the packages available. Anyway, I will deprive you no longer as I introduce Jeremy Hodgson. Enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side.
Okay, Jeremy, so we start, as we always do, with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Uh, 27, three to the power three, nice and symmetric. Oh, has that always been a favourite? For a long time, yes. <laughs> yes, I... I, I... Three, uh, three seems like the proper, the first proper prime number. You know, two doesn't seem like a proper prime number. And uh, yeah, nice number. Yeah. I like it. Solid. I like it, Jerry. Nice. And um, question number two, then. What was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Uh, student at university, I remember being very uh, fascinated by the hairy ball theorem. Do you remember that one? Hairy ball? Uh, no, you have to tell me more there. Well, the hairy ball theorem is that you've always got, uh, you've always got a. Um, a point at which there is no hair and it's it's there's always a point on the world where there is no wind um and uh, i i i loved imagining imagining <laughs> imagining that that was a wee bit of topology at school i remember being um uh, rather fascinated by the idea of uh, mean when i realized that it was a balance and uh, I realised that it was quite difficult to make the mean very large once you'd, once you'd started. So um, that was interesting. Yeah. Nice, superb. And, and final fair question for you, Jeremy. What job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education? Ah, well, it's a difficult one. I suppose I'd quite like to be an economist. Uh, I think there's some interesting models in economics. So, uh, uh, but, um, yeah, I, I guess so. Nice. I never became an economist, actually. I, I was... Uh, when I did a degree, I was uh, I was going to change to economics after the first year, but I stuck with the maths. So he, <laughs> there you have me. <laughs> nice, superb, Jeremy. Well, you've kind of teed us up nicely there to, to talk a little bit about your career. So p- pick it up wherever you like. And I wonder if you could just fill us in with kind of how it all began uh, for you and how you got to where you are today. Uh, well, um, I mean, it's a, uh, uh, I suppose a long story. It was quite interesting <laughs> thinking about it. Uh, uh, after I left... Um, after I left university, I uh, became a secondary teacher. Um, at that time, you could uh, you could work for Gambarilia, I suppose, uh, 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 Ilia in London. You could you could work for Ilia as a, an unqualified maths teacher. Actually, I think you've always been able to do that. And I was I was a teacher, a secondary teacher for a while, and then I became a youth worker, worked in housing for a bit. And at the beginning of the nineties, I. I got interested in teaching again, and I um, I uh, trained to be a, a, a teacher at the Institute of Education where I am now. Um, and I trained as I trained actually as a primary teacher, so I've taught in both um, uh, secondary and primary. Uh, so um, I I taught uh, various year groups in primary, and. Um, in about 96, 97, I uh, saw um, a PhD being advertised at um, King's College London. And I, as a result, I met uh, David Johnson, who uh, later became my, um, my supervisor and Philip Aidy, um, and uh, worked with uh, Margaret Brown and Mike Askew and other people at, at King's. At, at that stage, I suppose, King's was one of the places to be in the, in, in the world in mathematics education. Um, and I, I did a PhD about uh, CAME, Cognitive Acceleration in Maths Education. Um, and uh, we were looking at some um, ways of... Um, 
developing that secondary program for for primary and i was i was looking at um uh the professional development of a group of um a group of teachers on that um so um i um worked on came for uh about three of uh, joined King's as a as as a lecturer. Started um, teaching teacher education, which is uh, fun. Um, continued working with Margaret Brown, and um, um, also um, um, with Paul Black on um, on the um, formative assessment work. Uh, it was very interesting working with uh, with Paul. It was just at the point at which uh, uh, Dylan Willem had gone to um, America to work at ATS, and Paul had said to Margaret Brown, uh, "I need someone mousy to work on." <laughs> so, so Mark, Margaret fingered me. Mark, both at that stage, I was very skeptical about 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 formative assessment. I have to say, so so um, uh, Paul Paul rather convinced me. Actually, he rather convinced me about two things. I um, there was the formative assessment, and I, I found out that it was more than just no hands up, of course. <laughs> um, and he also, I'd heard Paul talk a lot about how he knew stuff about research, but he didn't know the local conditions of teaching. Um, and I'd always thought he didn't mean it. And I discovered that actually he really meant it. He really... Um, he really meant that actually we we get further in teaching through collaborations between researchers and and teachers and um, taking uh, and taking each other seriously and respecting each other's uh, different kinds of of knowledge is um, is is part of the way forward and that that's kind of influenced my work um, uh, my work uh, since then. Can I just can I just interrupt you a little bit there, Jeremy? Just on that, because I'm fascinated by by formative assessment, and we've we've had Dylan on the show a couple of times talking about it. You said you were were skeptical about it before you you spoke to to Paul Black. What what, what was it? What what was your skepticism based on? What 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 didn't you like about it? I thought it was a set of tricks. Um, I thought it was a set of tricks, and I thought it was uh, nothing new. Um, and I think I was, I think I was wrong there. Actually, um, uh, um, I mean, Paul Black and Dylan Willem didn't invent the the, the, the concept of, of formative assessment. That had been around for um, uh, for many years. Um, but what they what they did was kind of. Um, Transform how we thought about formative assessment and and uh, think about how one might put that into 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 practice. And it certainly wasn't a set of tricks. Um, I mean, Dylan is is very good at those techniques. If you um, you'll have seen him do those techniques, the the um, the traffic lights and yes. everything. He's he's very very he's very very skilled at those. But actually, it's it's those techniques are. Are only ways of getting at what kids know and what kids need to do in order to to move forward. And they're they're kind of 
partly their techniques to get teachers to um, take a, a, a broader range of, of ideas from the classroom, broader range of, of kids, and partly their techniques to get the kids actually just uh, thinking more about the learning, being self-regulated learners, if you want. And um, ju- just before I, I let you carry on with, with your, your story of your career, Jeremy, because um, you're actually you're the co-author of, of one of my favourite um, kind of papers, and I think it's almost kind of a, a bit a bit of a lost one because you did the kind of math spin off of the inside the black box. Is is that right? Yes, I did with uh, with uh, with Dylan. Um, so yeah, that, that, that was fun to write. Um, I, I um, and uh, I, you may not realise this. But it has been translated into different languages. Nice. And, uh, in in particular, it's been translated into Swedish, and it's in every Swedish classroom. So, so when I go to Sweden, math teachers do know who I am, which is, <laughs> which is, which is nice. <laughs> oh, that's great! It's an absolutely wonderful paper, and I'll I'll try and put a link to to so where people can get it um, if they haven't read it. Cause it's absolutely fantastic. But anyway, sorry, I've I've interrupted you there, Jeremy. So what happened? What happened? Kind of after the formative assessment years, as I, as I'll call them. Well, they've kind of continued. Um, I mean, we we started. We um, we actually I actually started working with um, uh, with Paul and uh, Chris Harrison and uh, Beth and Marshall on um, a, a summative assessment project, looking at how teachers could use teacher assessment in in the classroom. Uh, it was a follow on from their um their kind of seminal uh formative assessment uh project um and um interesting project interesting interesting to be working with both english and math teachers because i think there's there's interesting things that we can learn from english teachers about meaning and about stories and about how we use mathematics so um, and I, I think there's also things that English teachers can learn from math, mathematics teachers about ways of thinking about how kids understand things, um, uh, etc. So could you was, just on that, Jeremy, because I, I, again, sorry to interrupt you, but it's just fascinating this. Could you could you dig into that a little bit more? What are some of these kind of specifics that you think maths teachers could learn from from, from English teachers? Like what, what would that kind of look like in, in a lesson context? Well, I, I, I want English teachers have never English has never um, had a real problem with the idea of using language to write stories or tell things to people, whether it's factual things or or fictional things. Yet we've really failed to persuade people of the need to do that in mathematics. Yes. Um, and mathematics, for me, is nothing without being able to do things. I know there's a beauty in mathematics as a, as a pure discipline, but actually its power comes from um, being able to describe the world, being able to make decisions, being able to being able to tell stories, actually, um, and the the mathematics is 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 an important facet of that. It can do things that that language can't do, and that we could really learn from uh, from English teachers that that is that is important. We we call it things like um, problem solving or 
um, inquiry maths or whatever. But it really is using maths to do to do what maths does best and uh, describe, critique, make us think about the world in um, in different ways. I like that, Jeremy. I've, n- I've never thought of problem solving as, as telling a story before. I, I, I like that. that that's, re- that's really nice. Um, sorry, keep, keep going, Jeremy. Keep, keep going on your career. Where, where are we up to now at this stage? Because you, well, I mean, we could talk for hours just on this, especially if I keep interrupting. But well, yeah, keep, keep, bring us uh, well, up to date. Then um, I suppose I suppose the next big thing was um, the ICAMS project. Um which um, was a large project, part of a program about about um, trying to make mathematics teaching better in the sense of um, getting more kids to do mathematics, getting more kids to want to do mathematics post-16, getting, sorting out some of that, um, that STEM agenda. And um, it was an opportunity, actually, to... Uh, to meet um, Dimar Cookman, um, whom I'd known but hadn't really known well. And um, uh, since 2008, I've worked very, very closely with uh, with Dimar. And ICAMS was also um, an opportunity to revisit um, some of the early early UK work on uh, children's understandings. The concepts in secondary maths and science work that um, Margaret Brown and Dietmar Kuckerman and actually Paul Black had, had 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 worked on, and we kind of felt that that work had been a wee bit lost from teaching, um, and uh, there was a real value in that work, and we wanted to revisit that work, but also tie it to the formative assessment work. Um, I mean, you mentioned the uh, Maths Inside the Black Box uh, uh, booklet. One of the things that um, we felt when we were writing that was that we really needed to tie formative assessment to two things. One was uh, children's learning and children's understanding and, and, and linking it back to how, how kids develop mathematically. Um, and um, secondly, to to give real concrete examples of how to do this in in the classroom, um, yes. and uh, how 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 teachers could could really do formative assessments. It's, it's quite it's quite a slippery idea once you get past the the no hands up stuff. Um, and um, I've worked on on ICAMS uh, for the I guess for the past ten years. First for that um, that that ESRC funded project, and then latterly um, on the Education Endowment uh, funded project. Um, and um, uh, what else? I, I, I <laughs> meantime I I uh, I moved to uh, Nottingham. Um, I've uh, worked on a number of Education Endowment Foundation projects. It's been very, I think it's been very interesting, this uh, Education Endowment, the EEF uh, project over the, over the, over the past, um, uh, over the past six or seven years and how that, how that's changed, how we, 
how we think about education and how we uh, communicate, particularly between researchers and um, and teachers, and how we communicate just research findings and and what we know. Um, so I'm, I'm, I've worked on a number of of those projects. I've, um, I've also I've also produced or helped produce some some guidance on teaching mathematics at Key Stage 2 and Key Stage 3, which was based on a, a large review that I carried out with um, Colin Foster um, and Rachel Marks, and also, again, uh, Margaret Brown. Um, and um, I suppose last year I moved to, uh, to back to London and, and, and UCL, uh, which is um, a, a, a fantastic place to work, I'm finding. <laughs> superb, well, fantastic, Jerry. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> that's superb. We're going to dig into some of the things that you talked about, particularly ICAMS and, and some of the other projects as the interview progresses. But before we dive into that, Jeremy, a question I always ask people, particularly if they're either current teachers or, or have taught in the past, is to pick a favourite failure. And I wonder if you could think back to your career in the classroom or, or, or at any stage in your career. And I wonder if you could pick an event or a lesson or a moment that, that didn't go across according to plan and, and in particular I'm interested in, in what you learned from that experience uh, well I've had many failures uh, <laughs> so, so it, it's uh, one, of, one, of, one of the things that I've learned in life is that I'm often wrong so uh, so and I, 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 I strongly believe in the power of failure uh, to help us learn um, and uh, there's a there's actually a great book about this uh, about failure. It's called How to How to Fail. Um, it's a lovely a lovely book about uh, about about the the importance of failure. But if I was to pick out a, a, a particular thing, I suppose it's the first um, came lesson I taught. Uh, so cognitive acceleration in mathematics education. Um, I don't know if you know that set of set of lessons there. Fantastic resource, um, and um, there's really good evidence that it makes a difference for uh, for kids' uh, mathematics. Um, and um, the the first lesson um, is a lesson called Roots. Oh yes, yes. Um, so it's basically uh, trying to figure out um, uh, something about about trapezia, um, and. Um, uh, David Johnson, my supervisor, I mentioned earlier, uh, told me to go off and just teach the lesson to find out, to find out what, what it was like, what I could do. It, it was a complete disaster. <laughs> it was a complete disaster, and I, I tell you why it was a complete disaster. I hadn't thought it through. Yes. I hadn't thought. I hadn't thought. I hadn't done the maths properly. I'd done the maths, but I hadn't done it properly. And by properly, I think you, I think you need to. If you're going to teach something that's quite tricky, I think you've got to done it, done it three times before mm. you before you actually teach it. I think I think because each time you do it, you just notice something extra. Um, and I hadn't done that, and I hadn't thought about what the kids would come up against. Yes, and I hadn't thought about I kind of the need to motivate them. And um, I mean, I guess we'll talk about this later. But but actually, I think it's the teacher's job to motivate them. It's, it doesn't it doesn't rest in 
in the maths. It, it's you that does does the motivating. You, I mean, the, the activity is perfectly motivating in principle, but you you've got you've got you've got you've got to work through that. So um, I, I mean, I I learned so much about how you need to prepare, particularly for things that are really important. Because it was quite an important lesson to do because it was early on in my um, in my PhD. I needed to understand about came and I hadn't I, I didn't get enough learning about that about about that lesson or about about came from it. So what I learned, do the maths, do it more than once, think about the lesson, think what can go wrong and think about the questions kids will ask and think about how to motivate the mathematics. Because the mathematics while it may be while it may be in principle motivating, it's you that does the work. You need to interest them in um, in that mathematics. That's um, a that, that's a great answer, Jeremy. Now, a couple of couple of questions on that. And um, this came up actually when I interviewed uh, Greg Ashman for the second time a couple of weeks ago. And his advice to to new teachers, but I think it applies to all teachers, is when you're planning a lesson, do do all the questions that you intend to ask the students. Um, and it's even more important when you look at a lesson um, such as the, the Kane Roof, Roofs lesson, where the, kind of the lesson can go off in, in in slightly different directions. So I think that's important. But would you also agree, Jeremy, that that sometimes as well it's good to get someone else doing the maths, another colleague or something, because whether whether you call it curse of knowledge or whatever, just one person doing it might not necessarily pick up on some of the difficulties that, that other students may have. And particularly if you if you're a less experienced teacher, I always find it's really useful to get as many other teachers doing the maths and then have a discussion about it before the lesson so you're going better informed would you agree with that oh for sure i mean it's always better to do maths with someone else uh, they'll 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 notice something that um you won't notice i mean it, it's been fantastic working with deepmar kukman on the on the icams lessons just to because it, you you spark off different uh, different things you you think about there's so in in i mean i know everybody talks about how maths that in our in our curriculum we've got too many things to <laughs> to teach i don't think we've got much to teach um we've got a few big key ideas i mean because they they've got they've got they've got aspects of progression but i mean for example we've got we've got to teach multiplication and multiplicative reasoning and that's a kind of 10 uh, a 10 year project or so um but but we've actually because we've actually got a few things to teach it, it, it's actually clear to me that um it's actually quite difficult to teach these few things they're they're they're, they're quite slippery mm. for for kids to to get at and the nuance is really really important so working with someone else you get um uh you get you get quite a lot of nuance um and i suppose i suppose the uh, tom frankham um who now teaches at, at birmingham university used to teach at um run the department at, at king's norton school in in birmingham a great at that time it was a great mixed attainment um mixed attainment school um, I mean, he he saw uh, his work with with the department as being centered around doing problems and not just centered around doing problems, but centered around working together 
on the same problem year after year. So you came back to the problem a year later and, and did it as a department again. And, and, and again, you saw, I mean, he argues that you, you, you see more in the activity by doing it together and by doing it uh, repeatedly over, over time. So, so absolutely. Do it, do it with other people. We're going to ask the kids to do it with other people, aren't we? So we, 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 need, we, need, we need to do some of that ourselves, both, both, both to model that activity. I mean, not that they see you doing it, but I mean, we're going to believe that mathematics is a collective ingen, uh, uh, endeavor if we're going to teach kids that it's, uh, that it's something that we communicate with. Absolutely. But, uh, but, uh, but also, see how you do it. Yes. I mean, actually, you, I mean, if we're talking about collaboration, we need to teach kids how to collaborate. We need to teach them how to do maths together. We can't just assume that they'll do it, that they'll, they'll, they'll pick it up on their own. And one of the ways to do that is to do it yourself and reflect on, 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 on your own, on your own uh, uh, activity. Because that's not enough. You need to look at the, the research. You need to look at other colleagues working. But, but that's an important point. Absolutely. And then two other things on, on your favourite failure that, that just sprung to mind when you were describing it, Jeremy. And the first is just, just a quick one, and it's an obvious point, but I think it needs saying that that came Ruth's lesson uh, potentially is an absolutely fantastic lesson. But as you described there, when you did it, it, it didn't go to plan and you, you've isolated why that was the case. And it just goes to show that a good resource or a great resource or a great activity does not necessarily lead to a lead to a great lesson. And the reason I, I mentioned this is because teachers sometimes say to me or I'll say to teachers, have you got anything good on straight line graphs or have you got anything good on adding fractions? And sure, they may give me a resource that was absolutely phenomenal for them. But if it, if I haven't put the work in or if I haven't thought about it enough um, or if I haven't got the experience of delivering it, it, it could end up being a bit of a disaster. Well, would you agree with that? Uh, possibly there's not even is there such a thing as a great activity or is it or is it all in the in the delivery and the preparation? No, there are better activities, but I think I mean, most most problems or tasks in mathematics can be. It made interesting if you look hard enough at them um, and you give them give them enough time. But certainly there are there are there are great there are I mean, there are there are there are particular tasks or activities that kind of just lend themselves to things. Um, I, I, I mean, Malcolm Swan took one of the one of um Dietmar Cookman's questions, the 2n or n plus 2 question. And could, you, could you just describe that question? Because it's a crazy well, cracker, it's, this, Jeremy. So uh, you, you ask kids which is bigger, 2n or n plus 2. Really, it's a really key idea because it gets that it's getting at the use of symbols, what they mean, and the notion of that that n can, can, can stand for a whole set of, a uh, whole set of numbers and describe a, a relationship. And, uh, and uh, I mean, when we asked that to 14 year olds in 2008, 2009, I mean, the vast majority of them at 14, at age 14, say 2n is bigger because yes. multiplication makes things bigger. And uh, because it, it, it well, it, uh, 2n is bigger some of the time. 
<laughs> but but it's 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 not bigger when n equals two, and it it's smaller when n is is less than two, and 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 that that um, that notion that those two expressions can the relationship within those two expressions is 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 really key there. So what Malcolm did when he transformed that into um, into a task is he he created that into a sometimes. Uh, uh, never and always true task, and that that transformation to sometimes never always true just lets kids in. Of course, it won't work terribly well unless you've got some kids who are saying different things. Mm. So, uh, I mean, a, an, an activity works for yeah, if it if it doesn't work, you go on to something else. But there are activities that lend themselves. To um, to development, but of course, you're still going to think what's going to happen. You still got to go beyond the the always, sometimes, never true. What is the starting point, not the end point? Yes. Um, and uh, and you need to probe. And once you start probing, you'll find that kids are not very certain. And uh, some of the kids who said categorically. 2n is bigger because multiplication makes things bigger. You'll find, well, it's most of the time that it's bigger. They'll say, and uh, you know, it's got to be. I know what I know what the teacher's thinking. They they're thinking about a particular number, so they've got they've got that that what's what's in the teacher's head idea that yes. you uh, you need to unpack, which of course is related to the to the difference between. Um, a symbol is standing for a, a particular unknown, and a symbol is standing for a set of numbers, and then being able to being used as a, a description for a set of relationships or an, an expression. I'll tell you what, Jeremy. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to admit something. I, I want your advice on this, and I, I want to know whether you've seen this or experienced this. Um, I think for a lot of my career, I've been pretty bad at delivering uh, lessons with that kind of activity. If we if we take the two n um, m plus two activity, and the reason is, I'll go into that lesson obviously knowing the answer. And having a way that I understand it in my head. And, and for that one, I'd probably picture it as two straight line graphs and the where they intersect at, at n equals 2 and everything to the right, 2 n's bigger and everything to the left and n plus 2 equals bigger. And I'm almost, and I, I, God, it's, it's making me cringe thinking about this. I remember lessons I taught years ago where I was so keen to get that explanation out because I thought it was so, so good and it, this was bound to kind of work for the kids. And I was almost kind of pushing them along, saying, can anyone think of a different way? Oh, what about if you use a graph? What happens if you use straight lines and so on and so forth? Instead of kind of giving the kids time to, to, to digest it all and, and speak to each other and play around with ideas and make mistakes and suggest things. And so my question to you, Jeremy, is, is that something that you, you witness with these tasks? And do you have any advice for teachers who perhaps also struggle to, to deliver these kind of activities? Well, yes, I mean, that's quite important. Maths really is slippery. Some of these ideas are really slippery until you've got them. Mm. And it, I mean, it's, it's really interesting talking to kids about, act, about tasks like that 2n, n plus 2 question. Once they've got it, there can be no other answer. Yes. They'll, they'll look at, you, you interview a, a group of uh, uh, three or four kids one of them's got it and they're saying to the others 
how can how can you not see it? And that, I mean, I I guess that was the problem with that came Ruth's lesson for me, is that I had one particular way of seeing it, and I, we need to let kids in. And um, I mean, there's a lot of talk about about multiple representations, which are, are really really important. Multiple representations are really important. It's really important to develop multiple representations so that we've got so that we've got different ways of just attacking uh, mathematics when it arises in a problem or when it arises in 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 real life or when we can use it in in real life. Um, and but it, it, it's also important to let kids in. So it's 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 important to give kids different ways of uh, of, of of thinking about what's going on there. So I mean, I mean, I mean we, the 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 notion of um, the Cartesian graph and the straight line graph, two n r m plus two is part of the way of thinking about how we develop that that understanding that that um, uh, that, that that graph is that graph represents a whole set of things so if we if we draw um n plus two on on a graph there's um um the the line well i i, I would i was um i was talking to one of my colleagues kazette krishnan this morning about um do you remember the smp books school mathematics Project? oh yes classics deep uh, uh, and i and margaret um wrote a paper about how straight line graphs were introduced to the CSE kids, so not the O-level kids, the CSE kids. So this is going back to a, a, a book that was uh, developed in the 1970s. And um, in the teacher's guide, it, 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 it says, oh, it says something like, um, immediately you draw that line, you're, 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 you're making you're making a, a claim about the set of points that that line that that set of points satisfies that well in this case n plus two that expression that 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 they, that they that 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 satisfies that that expression and we're 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 giving a value to that expression so that line being a set of points and when you draw in that line so I, I, it's just a, a uh, a lovely description, but but um, what is interesting there is how the authors of that um, that textbook take the teacher seriously and uh, speak to the teacher both mathematically and uh, and pedagogically there, because there's a kind of there's a kind of realization about what this mathematics means and and but also about what the kids kids might find difficult. I mean, if you draw a line, you've drawn a line. It's not It's not a set of points mm. unless you really realise that it's a set of points and you think about it being a set of points. So the straight line graph that, that you and I see as, as, as almost transformative in our knowledge, isn't it? You know, yes. you know, graphical, graphical representations are so, so powerful. They're, I mean, it's a really clever little piece of technology to, to be able to draw things on a, on a graph. It represents a whole, a whole set of knowledge that we've, that we've, that we've, we've, 
we we put together and then we've had the luxury of teaching people about it which makes us even it makes us understand it even better and and so those things will not be immediately illuminating to kids we have to give them multiple ways in mm. and some of those might be might be stories some of them might be little applets some of them might be putting numbers in and seeing what happens um, some of them might be tables but in order to develop that sense of not just um, functions and relationships but the, the idea of the, the Cartesian graph as being such a powerful thing that we can uh, that we can uh, that we can yet then use absolutely and and <laughs> final thing on this jeremy we're off on tangents left right and center here but I'm, I'm i'm enjoying this very much is is you touched upon motivation and i'll be mad at myself if, if we don't get a chance to come back to it later because you so i want to i want to tackle it head on here she said something very interesting there you said that the, the maths can be motivating but the teacher plays a key role in in being a motivating factor can you just Dig into what you mean by that. What are, what are some of the things that a teacher can do to help motivate students? Uh, well, they can be interested in the maths and the students. That's really important. Uh, they can uh, figure out the maths themselves. Uh, the the maths the maths tasks are potentially motivating. They're not motivating in themselves. Um, and I know you've written about about the notion of of of, of, of relevance, and uh, we've we've often thought about motivation as being um, about about showing kids where where maths can be used, and when we when we bring in the maths, I mean they the students kind of say to us, "Well, I could have solved it without the maths, can I?" Um, so. So there's the but but what we need to do with um, with tasks is we need we need to make a connection. We need to make a connection to the mathematics, and we need to make a connection to the kids. And um, we need to intrigue the kids to to at least some extent to explore to explore the mathematics. That might be um, something surprising happening ha happening with the maths. It might be um, it, 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 it might be two n n plus two is is interesting and intriguing, partly because it's sometimes true and sometimes not. Uh, but we we can only um, we can only get kids to take that seriously if we take them take them and we take the mathematics seriously. And we point things out to them. Things won't be surprising, of course, unless you bring some knowledge to them. I mean, it, it's only, I, I mean, kids, why, why do kids say 2n? Because they know something about multiplication and they know something about multiplication with whole numbers. And they're absolutely right. Multiplication does make whole numbers bigger when we multiply whole numbers together. And that's, a, I mean, actually, early on, it's relative. It's a good thing to have noticed that. It's a good thing to have noticed that multiplication behaves differently to addition. Um, and it, it may be that that's, that's a key kind of misconception that most kids have to go through in order to be surprised when it's not true. Um, I mean, I, I have 
I don't have much evidence for that. But I, I, I think I think it, it is important to be surprised. And to be surprised, you've got to have um, things that you think are true that are that that prove not to be always the case. Um, it's got challenging on it. Absolutely. Fascinating stuff to this, Jeremy. Well, we've kind of teased a bit about ICAMS. You've mentioned um, kind of a bit of introduction to it, but I wonder if we can just talk a bit more kind of explicitly about it here, because this was whenever I kind of first... Uh, well, got speaking to you really, and then you and Dietmar came on the the Tesmaths podcast many years ago to talk about ICAMS. Um, and I wonder if you can just just give us a little bit of background on it. Can we start with what, what's it stand for, ICAMS, and and how did it come about? And then we'll dive into some of the actual activities themselves. It stands for Increasing uh, Competence and Confidence in Algebra and Multiplexer Structure. Um, we, I mean, the the mouthful of the name. Because <laughs> we needed we we needed uh, an acronym, so, so so the structure was 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 from the uh, from the acronym. Uh, but it, it was it was really about um, thinking about what the key ideas in um, in uh, secondary mathematics that kids uh, struggle with, um, and uh, though we uh, focused on. Uh, multiplicative reasoning, uh, not just multiplication, but but thinking about multiplicative uh, relationships and uh, and um, and algebra, um, and um, we focused on um, uh, key stage three because um, the at, at key stage three uh, the research on children's progression. Um, tends to show a kind of plateau um, in year seven, eight, and uh, nine. And we wanted to do something about that um, because, um, I mean, it, I mean it, it, is, it is kind of surprising, that, that plateau, in that um, that's a point at which teachers have kind of more freedom. They're not weighed down by year six sats and they've not yet got to um, to to GCSE. So you really ought to have some freedom to uh, to, to to develop mathematical thinking and to but to, to 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 enable kids to um, to understand this uh, this key powerful idea that about 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 multiplication because I, I think multiplication underlies uh, much of at least school algebra actually that that the, the, the notion that you, you you've got multipliers or gradients or whatever are, are, are all to do with are all to do with the nature of, of multiplication and that I mean that then becomes that's a key idea for thinking about a whole range of things that you might uh, encounter in real life, at work, um, in 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 terms of understanding things that happen to you, like uh, like um, health issues and and the risks of of, of operation. I mean, it, you can't really understand risk without without understanding multiplicative uh, multiplicative reasoning. So we wanted to do something about that, 
and we, as I said, we also wanted to revisit the concepts in secondary math and science stuff because that that um, I mean, if, if you talk to many people in in UK mathematics, um, that 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 was a, a kind of key moment in terms of in terms of describing children's um, understandings and how they how they how they how they how they develop how they make sense of the world and and how when um they're um how how even when they're making mistakes they're almost always trying to be mathematical and it, i i it, it's a really key i i i idea that we we take kids seriously when they're doing mathematics. Now, that's part of the issue about, about motivation. When kids say things, they almost always say them for a reason. Like the two N issue. Because multiplication makes things bigger. It's not a stupid thing to say. I mean, it, it, and, and so they're being mathematical. They're generalising. And isn't that what we want kids to do? And we know that when we generalise, half the time, maybe three quarters of the time, maybe 90% of the time, we're wrong. But it's the generalisation that is the start of figuring out what is what is right. That's that's where much of creativity, I think, comes from. Is 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 looking at um, looking at another setting and, and and seeing if the ideas that work there work work where you're trying to figure something out. Um, Back to old polio and how to solve it, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so that, uh, so, so we wanted to revisit that, and um, and we wanted to, as I say, just firm up the ideas about formative assessment and, and and figure out how to do that and how to advise teachers and how to do that because it is it's 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 hard. I mean, it's really hard. Um, um, take an idea like feedback. Um, I mean, feedback is terribly important, isn't it? I mean, you, we learn from having feedback, but but feedback needs to be used cautiously. Um, I don't know if you've um, if you've read uh, Tim Play and Hattie's paper on feedback recently. Oh yes, one of my faves, that so, one, Jeremy. So I mean, a great great paper, been been criticised left, right, and centre, and it's been used used without question by many in the in in the sector i think what many people ignore is uh, is is part of their claim in the abstract they say that feedback is the most powerful um um intervention or something in it in education many people stop there <laughs> and, and and actually they go on to say for good or for ill yes so so actually um Feedback, to use it well, you need to use it well. And you need to understand how kids are, 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 are developing. Don't give them continual feedback. If we give them continual feedback, what will the kids take away? Well, learning is very slow. So they will feel that they're not learning. We need to give them feedback at key moments. At key moments when we know that they've kind of learned something. And we tell them they've learned something, and we tell them that it's good, and we tell them what's different. And we also need feedback to ourselves as teachers in order to 
in order to think about what might what 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 might what might come next, what the kids are are are, are struggling with, why they're not making why they're not making any progress. So feedback comes comes both ways. But much of the feedback, the time when we do really explicit feedback, might be relatively infrequently at points at which kids have, have learned something. And and one of the the, the, the things about those uh, ICAMS lessons was was to do that and to generate um, a classroom environment where kids got feedback from each other, uh, feedback about um, how other other kids were thinking about the problem and where that differed from how they were thinking about the problem, and feedback from other kids about what other kids did or didn't understand about their their explanations, their ways, their ways, the ways of of thinking, so that you you kind of open up debate, but you open up debate about the mathematics, um, and that's difficult. Uh, it's difficult for teachers to do. It's difficult for kids to do. So we provided some structure for uh, for doing that, um, and um, as as you know, Craig, the the lessons start with a, a kind of um, a kind of uh, assessment. Uh, activity that's carried out uh, sometime before the lesson and that um, that assessment activity so I mean actually we start with a with a a lesson called boat hire uh, which harks back to that 2n n plus 2 problem which is bigger Um, uh, and uh, we actually start the ICAMS lesson with a slight amendment of that of that question 3n or n plus 3, which is bigger. We changed it a little bit, partly because we wanted it not to be a whole number where they were equal. Um, and that just opens up the debate a little more and, and just just ensures that the activity is uh, captures a greater range of kids and captures a greater range of, of ideas. But, um, but that assessment activity the feedback there is mostly to the teacher. It's mostly feedback for the teacher to get some opportunity to think before the lesson, how are my kids going to engage with this? What are they going to have, find difficult? What are they going to talk about? And that, I mean, that's a really key idea. Who's going to, who's going to talk and what are they going to talk about? And how am I going to deal with that? And even if the teacher only spends what? Five minutes thinking about that between that and the lesson. I mean, that's a marvellous opportunity, even just five minutes. That's a marvellous opportunity. I mean, you know, in in class, 30 seconds is a long time. Imagine having five minutes between between the the, the your assessment activity and the start of the lesson. It's, it's, it's almost golden time. Um, and so we wanted to we wanted to use formative assessment in that way. The, the teacher gets some feedback on how the kids are understanding um, and what they find difficult, what they find easy, uh, how they'll talk about, it, who disagrees, how much disagreement, in order that they can then just tailor what they what they do, but also so that they can think about the questions that they'll ask and the pauses they'll use and how long they'll spend on on on, on different parts of um, parts of the uh, the lessons. And um, and that I, I mean that, that the the ICAMS lesson then there's 
what, 24 lessons that are taught over, 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 over two years that take you through a lot of the, a lot of the key stage three curriculum on algebra, multiplicative reasoning, how to do multiplication, division, meanings of things. Um, and that stories issue. Um, uh, there's a, there's a, uh, it's, there's a lovely lesson on, um, on, uh, uh, stories uh, and uh, almost every teacher when they say when they see this lesson they say oh that's too easy <laughs> and then they try it out with their kids well first they try it out with their teachers can, can you describe what it is jeremy okay so um so why teachers think that it's um it's terribly easy is that the the, the lesson centers around 12 times 3 um, and um, we actually know very early on in the lesson that it's 36 uh, teachers think that 12 times 3 is 36 is 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 dead easy um, uh, they uh, they ask they ask other teachers to tell stories about this and um, the first reaction from other teachers is a pause uh, because they haven't been asked that question before, and then they, then they, uh, they, uh, they give an answer like uh, three, uh, three bags of, of twelve sweets, and then they they give more and more answers that are kind of repeated addition answers, mm. um, and um, uh, and the same thing happens with kids. It happens much more slowly with kids because kids have never been asked to make stories up. But once they once they get the idea that you can use a repeated edition story, it's hard to stop them. Yes. They come up with with loads of different stories. And whilst they're doing that, of course, they're generalizing. They're doing what um, Anne Watson and John Mason talk about creating that body that example space, that body of, of examples, but they create lots of lots of repeated edition uh, stories. What they don't then do, and what the teacher needs to prompt them to do, is to create different models, like an area model, um, and um, uh, an area model. What? Um, uh, how many? Uh, how many chairs are there in? In three rows of tw- twelve chairs, when you're you're watching a play or sitting in assembly or or, or whatever, um, and um, that starts to not only expand kids' ideas about multiplication because the area model is terribly powerful when we when we come to think about the the axioms and rules of multiplication and and and, and how it relates to addition and subtraction, but it but it also helps with that notion of telling stories because these are these are very short model a type stories but 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 actually to tell stories that we're really interested in we've got to develop those initial models in order to in order to be able to apply mathematics to to the world um so i remember in in um in one classroom when we were developing that lesson a child at at, at the back said someone had said that the rows of chairs and he said 
three rows of 12 tanks. And then he said, that's a lot of tanks, isn't it? And, and just being, just, just understanding that the mathematics actually means something. That was, I mean, that, that felt like, uh, one of those, it, you know, that's one of, one of the moments when you feel it's worth being a math teacher. You know, those light bulb moments when you see some, I, I, someone visibly learning. It, it's, um, uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it, it, it's a, it's a pleasure to see that. It makes, um, it makes doing what you, what you do worth, um, worth doing. And can I, can I ask Jeremy about the, about the ICAMS lessons? Because as you know, I've, I've, I've dabbled with them for, for many years now. And, um, over the last kind of couple of years when I've, I've started reading a lot more research and, and thinking a lot more deeply about my practice and certainly interviewing people um, for this podcast, you, you'll be as aware, aware as anybody of the kind of so-called split between explicit instruction and, and inquiry-based um, uh, methods and, and, and activities. Where does ICAMS kind of sit there? Is, is this something, is it kind of discovery or is it does the, is there explicit instruction that goes on as part of it? Is that a useful distinction, do you think? What's your kind of take on all that and, and how where ICAMS fits into that? Well, I, I'm puzzled by the debate between uh, inquiry and uh, explicit instruction. I'm, I'm really puzzled by, by the debate because in, in some ways this was... I thought this was a debate that had been sorted out in about 1980, but we seem to have, we seem to have re, revisited it. I mean, ICAMS, they're, they're quite directed lessons. Um, they're, they're not uh, direct instruction as in Engelman's direct instruction. I mean, his direct instruction is, is about, is, is about, uh, uh, and has a place. I mean, uh, uh, there's, there's very, very good evidence for direct instruction as, as being one of the things that one, one should use when, uh, when you're teaching and particularly with, with, uh, with, uh, with lower, low attaining kids. If, it, 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 but, but ICAMS is doing something slightly different. It's dealing with some of the, the slippery notion, um, and the slippery notion about what about relationships, and um, I mean it's neither inquiry nor nor discovery. Actually, it's it's certainly um, it's certainly strong and heavy on on teaching, but it's not direct instruction. We're not we're not we're not um, we're not teaching um, one one concept or a set of concepts or or one or one procedure. We're exploring what happens with with different procedure. It's not, it's not inquiry though as well, because um, I mean, inquiry lesson might be, would be more open and there's a place for inquiry, uh, inquiry teaching as well. I mean, it's, um, I've, I've said about telling stories, one can only tell stories really by being a bit open and, and uh, being about having opportunity for kids to express themselves mathematically. But that can't be the only thing that you do in, uh, in, in mathematics. We've got to teach kids how to do procedures. And, um, we should, we should, at the right point, when it, when it's the right point, we should teach them particular procedures and how to, how to use them. And, um, I mean, it's really important for, uh, for low attaining kids to get that step up. If they haven't caught the procedures, we've got to teach them. Uh, it's um, it's our duty as mathematics teachers to do that, but that won't teach everything. 
and uh, we can't um, um, the direct instruction uh, it certainly works for some procedures and there's other there's other ways of, of, of teaching procedures now you wouldn't want to teach every procedure using uh, using direct instruction because you want to give kids some opportunity to construct procedures for themselves and to uh, uh, and, and, and we should note that that's one of the things that we do well in the UK that we teach kids to um, to um, do use in, in informal methods in a way that the Far East don't uh, don't do really, um, but um, but but and 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 direct instruction also makes a, a good case for um, uh, for uh, some kind of conceptual uh, teaching. What it's it, it's not um, it, it's it's not as clear that it's good for is is teaching heuristics or um, um, uh, the. Often mathematics um, people are, who who are strong mathematically are, are relatively flexible. They've got a, they've got a number of of, um, uh, of sophisticated strategies to draw on, and and um, they can they can they can draw on a particular strategy that might 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 be looks like it might might work for that that problem. I don't think direct instruction does that well. And so you 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 need you you and and, it, and and if we're going to get kids to use mathematics beyond school, when we are not around to tell them what to do, we've got to teach them to be flexible. We've got to teach them some heuristics. We've got to teach them about um, well, HMI in the 1980s called I think they called them generic mathematical strategies or something. But it's it's being able to choose between different strategies and weigh them up, and if one doesn't work, not having some others to draw on. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Well, I, I mean that's that's very important. But it, I mean, I, I suppose um, around about um, 2009, 2010, I was involved in a project with um, uh, Mike Askew where we were asked by Nuffield. Uh, the Nuffield Foundation to look at um, high attaining countries internationally and and see what the research there said about um, uh, about how they taught and and one of the things I mean I suppose it does make me reflect on whether the, whether I'm right about that trad inquiry debate it didn't make me think more about procedural learning and the importance of of procedures and the importance of good and efficient procedures, and there's there's in the in 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 the Pacific Rim in those um, um, in Hong Kong, Korea, Singapore, uh, teachers probably are better. Not sure, better is the right word, um, but they've got. I suppose it is. They've got a better understanding of the mathematical procedure, and they've uh, probably got better ways of teaching it, teaching them mathematically. Um, um, I suppose I don't know if you've come across Lipping Ma's book about primary teaching. Yeah, it's been recommended to me a couple of times, but I've not read it yet, Jeremy. Um, it's, a, it's a fantastic book. She compares some uh, Chinese teachers to some U.S. teachers. Um, a small number of teachers, but but the Chinese teachers 
the Chinese teachers, um, their, in general, their knowledge was better. Um, and they used more mathematical ways of um, justifying things. So they, they used things like the, the rules of addition. They were explicit in that. They're, they used the commutativity, distributivity, etc. But they, they, there's one point in, in the book where a, a novice Chinese teacher is, is asked something about the division of fractions and how one might um, um, conceptualize that, how much what, actually, how much might one tell a, a story about that? And they, they say, oh, I don't know, but I'll find out. And that finding out, um, the, the, those, those teachers on the Pacific Rim do more finding out, but the system gives them more resources and more structure and more help and support to do that finding out. So that finding out is, um, is systemically supported. Yes. Uh, so, and, and that really makes a difference. Um, so, yeah, so. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, Jeremy, I could, I could speak to you about ICAMS and the stuff from it um, all day long, but um, I've got about another million things to ask you here before we wrap up. So I wonder whether you could just, um, for, for teachers who want to know more about ICAMS and who've been hooked in by this and want to try some of the activities, um, where, where could they go to get them, Jeremy? Well, they, get, uh, uh, they can go to our website. Um, there's been a bit of a hiatus, Craig, because um, <laughs> we've, um, well, it's, it's part it's part of the, the 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 business of doing a a trial that's funded by the Education Endowment Foundation. So uh, so we've got a big trial. It will report next year, but the trial has come to an end. And while the trial's going, you can't be very public about the materials. So because you have to you have to make sure that the control group don't have access to the materials and it, yes. I, it, it's, it's i mean it's it's very frustrating but i understand perfectly why why it needs to happen and uh, so um in september we'll be refurbishing the website and uh we'll be uh we'll be making a big play but at the moment uh it's icams.org and uh you can find out something but it's very out of date and <laughs> it's out of date for a reason because we've been doing that Eve trial, but from September it'll be it'll be from the end of September it'll be up and running again, and we'll be uh, we'll be having a, a big splash at some point this year about how people can find out more about um, more about ICAMS. Got it, super. Well, the next thing I want to talk to you about, Jeremy, is that I was lucky enough to come to yours and uh, Colin Foster's session at um, BCME, where you talked about teaching low ability students, and, and I found this absolutely fascinating because it's—I think it's a weak area of my teaching. I certainly feel more comfortable teaching um, the higher end than, than the lower end. So I was—I was absolutely gripped in your session, and I wonder if you can just just talk a little bit about it here. Um, my first question to you is: uh, you interviewed teachers and you interviewed students. And um, what were some of your key takeaways from from the teacher interviews? Well, it was it was very interesting interviewing um, uh, teachers and students. I mean, I, I should say a little bit about the background of the project. Mm. This came out of another aspect of the ICAMS project where we we noticed that the proportion of low attainers had doubled in size 
from the 1970s to the to 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 the current day. Uh, by that proportion, I mean kids who were having difficulty with some aspects of the primary curriculum at age 14. So, so that I mean that's that, incredible, Jeremy. That, 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 I mean that 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 seemed to us wrong. Um, and um, I remember Margaret and Dietmar saying that actually in the 1970s they thought the proportion was too big, so they were both surprised by that. So that, that was where we came from that project. And th there were a number of aspects of the project. You'll know we did a big review, partly funded by Nuffield and partly funded by the Education Endowment Foundation, and that found some things about uh, low attainers' uh, learning. It, it found some issues about direct instruction. Direct instruction is a is a is a is a very useful uh, aspect of of, of, of teaching, um, and it found uh, uh, things like uh, concrete manipulatives and the representations are very important, particularly concrete manipulatives. And by concrete manipulatives, I don't mean just counting blocks. I mean things like. Um, like like number line, like using Cuisinart to understand the the, the multiplicative relations, or um, um, or or algebra, using things like multilink in a structured in a kind of structured way, um, and, um, and there were a number of other things that um, uh, that um, we found there. But we asked um, teachers about 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 various aspects that. Um, Kids either found difficult, or we knew that um, there were useful and research-based things that teachers could do. Um, so, in terms of useful and research-based things, we we asked them about representations and number lines in particular, um, and we asked them about concrete manipulatives. Um, and um, one of the things that teachers said to us was. Well, I've been on these courses and I've seen this way of doing it and I've seen this way of doing it and I've seen this way of doing it. I'm not really sure how to put it all together. And that struck us that that, that actually teachers needed some help there. Uh, the second thing that the teacher said to us was um, when kids are having difficulty, I explain more. That, that that links to that direct instruction stuff, although, of course, direct instruction has a very, very crafted and constructed approach, whereas the, the teachers are probably doing it by themselves. Uh, when we asked the kids about this, they said something interesting about the um, about explanations. They loved having explanations until it was too much. So the kids kind of appreciated the explanations, but the teachers often either said not enough or they said too much. And so it struck us that actually teachers need some help. there, And that may be where something like direct instruction may, may come in helpful, both in terms of in, in, in terms of helping teachers with explanations, but focusing on on one explanation to uh, to help them through. We we also asked um, asked uh, teachers about uh, derived facts. So uh, derived facts um, are uh, things like um, taking um, eight plus seven is fifteen, so seven plus eight is fifteen. 
um, six and six is, is 12, so six and, and, and five must be, must be 11. And you can do the same thing with, um, with multiplication, obviously. It's a very, very important um, aspect of, of mathematics and clearly linked to algebra because, because algebra is the general, at least school algebra is the generalization of those kind of number rules to, uh, to relationships. And um, interestingly, when we asked teachers about derived facts, they said, oh, isn't that obvious? I suppose we don't tell the kids that. And that struck us again, that actually, if kids don't catch on to something, we ought to tell them. I mean, there's a point at which to tell them. We need to tell them at a point at which they're going to get it or they're going to nearly get it or they're going to get something from it. So you don't tell them too early on and you but don't leave it too late. Otherwise, they'll kind of struggle. And because they haven't seen that one thing, maybe they become a low attainer. Maybe mm-hmm. they become a low attainer and it would be just that one or two things that would have made 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 the difference. Um, and it does strike us that, that actually we need to give teachers a bit more help as well as giving students a bit more help around 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 some of these some of these ideas. I mean you you've read the research, haven't you? You've read research papers. They do not tell teachers what to do. No. And there's got to be there's got to be there's got to be some translation. That's what ICOMS is about. How how do you do this thing called formal assessment? We know it works. What what um, Dylan and Paul found in their big review was we know it works. We don't know how to do it. And and so that crafting of how to do it is uh, is is really important. Teachers and kids both need uh, need um, need uh, support support there. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you another thing that, that, that struck me, Jeremy, from your session, and this is again another weakness. I'm not coming out of this very well, but I might as well get it all out on the table here. Um, you said that representations... You said that uh, representations and manipulatives are valued, but rarely deployed in principled ways. Um, I don't think I'm particularly good at using manipulatives, particularly with 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 older students. And as I say, I'm I'm not particularly good at, at teaching low ability students. I wonder if you can just dig into what you mean by that. And also, I love the idea that you said that uh, kids using fingers is something that perhaps teachers don't don't utilize enough. Um, can you just talk a little bit about representations and manipulatives? Yeah, I mean manipulatives. Are, it's, it's really important to be able to move things in that. It's, re- it's really, really important to be able to physically move them, move them about to, um, to take, for example, um, a, a, a set of multi-link in, 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 in the shape of a rectangle. Let's say, let's take that 12 times three example again. To, to, to take that and to be able to split that up, to split that up so that we can, we can see the associative rule, 12 times 3 is 6 times 2 times 3 is 6 times 6. And you can move it about so that you can, you can, you can kind of, we often talk about seeing. I'm, I'm trying not to say see. We can feel. We can start to develop an understanding of what's going on. We can talk about it. And we can start to develop 
representations. Because you don't want to be stuck in the physical world the whole time. You want to be able to develop the area model so that we can we can we can illustrate um, multiplication with the area model, and then we can move towards. I mean, you know, all our mathematics textbooks have um, an area model for 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 a uh, a a times b, or uh, for for the the introduction of algebra. You have the, you have the, those those rectangles that go a a plus two times b plus three, and they show up by a rectangle, and uh, they say therefore. And uh, they multiply out. Remember those? Uh, oh yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. It's, it's bread and butter to us. Most kids don't get it. Most kids think it's a silly thing the teachers do. And uh, and, uh, and and when we test the kids on that in um, in the ICAMS project, um, uh, they they just really they just didn't get it. And yet that's such a powerful model for understanding. Uh, understanding algebra and understanding lots of algebraic, uh, algebraic relationships. That uh, uh, that notion of that algebra is really about multiplication. Actually, that we're multiplying these these things that stand for sets of numbers uh, numbers together. So we need to develop from manipulatives and quickly or appropriately move to representations. You, do, you don't want to be left in the world of of having to to work with multi-link blocks, but it is terribly powerful to moving towards that array model and then being able to uh, develop mental images in which you can move things about, um, move things about in your in in your head, or move things about on a whiteboard, or move things about on a on 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 on, on a on a computer, um, and um, I mean in in the in the research, I mean, for sure, much of the manipulative work is in uh, is in primary, but the results are replicated in secondary and in college maths. And much of it's in the states, so it's college maths. They call it college maths rather than uh, university maths. Um, so manipulatives are important. I mean, they're going to be appropriate manipulatives. They're going to be appropriate manipulatives to the kind of concepts and ideas that one is um, is developing. And one has to have an exit strategy, an exit strategy that moves towards a, a more um, a representation or a more abstract uh, representation. As to as to fingers, <laughs> yeah. as, I mean fingers. Craig, I bet you use fingers from time to time. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I, I think fingers are a terribly useful resource that we carry around with us. Um, and um, we, unsurprisingly, we did expect this, so we asked kids about, about use, using their fingers. They were a bit embarrassed about using their fingers, to be honest. Um, I mean, which is in some way, I mean, in some ways, not surprising given uh, given the... Um, Many secondary teachers think that fingers aren't are are a kind of primary thing that to, uh, teachers that kids should have should have moved on from. Um, but it, I mean, it's kind of surprising given how much adults use the fingers. I I I use my fingers to keep track of things. I I'm, I mean, I will use fingers to count, and I'll use fingers to count in groups. Um, and um, 
and we found the kids were using fingers to to do grouping. Um, so uh, to work out um, uh, three times seven, three, six, nine, 12, 15, 18, 21. They're doing things, doing things like that with their fingers. I mean, when it got to big numbers, they were they often made um, small errors. So there's there's a there's a problem with fingers. But fingers are terribly useful, and they're terribly useful tool that you carry around with you. What we don't do is we don't have that exit strategy. Yeah. And um, so so at some point we tell kids you shouldn't be using your fingers anymore. We need to tell them how to what to replace that with, and it needs to be connected with with their with what they're doing with their fingers. Your fingers are a manipulative that you carry around. You'll probably never stop using your fingers. For there'll always be times when you. I mean, I, it's, it's when I use it is to when my working memory is full up, if you like to to use that 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 kind of metaphor. And I can, I can, I can hold it. I can hold it there out of my head, and, and it's terribly useful uh, um, when you don't have a bit of paper in front of you. And but, 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 but those kids that we talked to were using a relatively sophisticated strategy. They were not counting all; they were counting in groups. What we need then to move on to is counting on in groups, not counting all groups. And um, and then we need to move towards uh, towards fact retrieval, towards uh, towards 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 being able to use the facts that you've got to work out other facts that derive facts uh, that derive facts knowledge. Um, and we need to give them a way of working from their fingers, just like when we're working with primary kids and we move on from the number line and we move from counting all to counting on and we look at ways of doing that, we could do that with fingers. And it's very important to give kids a way to develop their knowledge, not to tell them to drop things, but to make those things more sophisticated and to make the strategies they, they use more sophisticated. I'm I'm fascinated by it by this, Jeremy, because it's that it's that exit strategy, and I love that I love that terminology for it, and that that, that I've always struggled with, and it's the key to is the key to it obviously to not there's no point saying to kids don't use your fingers if it's a strategy that's been working successfully for them then then where where on earth is their incentive to stop it is the key to to carefully choose questions where the fingers aren't going to be as effective as perhaps this other method that you're going to show them but but it's got to build upon what they the knowledge they've acquired from using fingers if that makes sense or, or is is there a better way of developing this exit strategy well it's got to be convincing to kids so it's got to be better in some way it's got to be faster it's got to be more efficient it's got to be better in some way um and i mean some of that better could be just they're doing better at maths of course so they're using uh, we could use We've got to develop their knowledge. Um, so from from that counting in groups, we've got to take that. We've got to develop some fact retrieval stuff, some knowledge, some some remembering of uh, recall of, of of facts. So that, so that um, we know three times five is fifteen. So we don't need to count that one. So we can go from fifteen, eighteen, twenty-one. That's 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 a that's a step on. 
representing it using different sorts of methods. You may be representing it in in groups. So when we when we draw those draw those fingers and looking looking for that connection between representing things in groups and then structuring it around an array or in an area model. But structuring it around an array is, is so powerful because then you've got that structure, you can start to you can start to break it up in particular ways, you can start to partition it. Um, and so but making a connection between the fingers, the groups and um, and representations on paper is 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 very important there. But it's got to be convincing to look at. Yes, got it. And final question for you on this uh, on this low ability thing, Jeremy. This was another thing that struck me from your session. You said number lines are not being used effectively, and I kind of perked up when I heard that because I thought, well, how on earth are they being used, and and how could they be being used better? So, what well, what did you find? Well, one of the reasons for using number lines is because they represent magnitude. Um, and they, um, I mean, there's, there's a there's a nice What Works Clearinghouse um, report by Siegler and others about about fractional fractions about knowledge of fractions and, and decimals. Number lines. If we use number lines to uh, represent magnitude, we can then use number lines to um, to figure out. Because that's what you've got to do. You've got to figure out with the kids to figure out that fractions and decimals are just numbers with magnitude. And that focus on magnitude is terribly important. What some of the kids said to us were, I don't understand those arrows. You know those arrows that we draw? And we draw them for good reasons. Uh, we represent um, uh, 22 plus 15 by taking the 22 and we draw an arrow to represent the 15 to get 37. Yep. Um, and we might break that arrow up into a 10 and a, a 15. We might even break it up into a 12 and a, and, and, uh, and a, and a 3 or, or whatever to show different ways of partitioning the numbers. Some of the kids said to us, we just don't get those, those arrows. And we've really got, this takes me back to the manipulative issue. What do those arrows represent? They represent some kind of movement. And so we've got to do a bit of the movement. We've got to give the kids some opportunity to figure out what's going on. And that this represents a movement, we've got to give them some chance to talk about it. Um, but what we often don't actually give them that, just that, just that space to develop an understanding of what's going on in order that they can then connect that uh, that to um, uh, to to the, to the numbers and to, to to the relationships, so they don't say what's going on with those arrows. I mean, that, uh, it's just if they do that, the number lines are not helping them at all. They're getting in the way. It's taking up it's taking up part of their valuable working memory, trying to figure out what's going on with the teacher, and they they're doing they're doing the calculation without the the help of the representation. Um, and without the help of the representation to understand what's going on and to generalize from that situation to other situations. So that you see a, a kind of structure to number, which is 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 what we need in order to use number effectively, I think. 
That's fascinating, that, Jeremy. Um, Last two kind of big questions from me and then just a a couple of reflections. The first, I mean, this could take us off. I mean, God knows where we're going to go with this one. But but it's the the whole setting versus mixed attainment. And it's it's been a long-running debate on this show. It's all over Twitter. People have always got an opinion on it. But as someone who's who's spent a lot of time researching this and has, has a vast amount of experience... Well, what's your understanding of the evidence, Jeremy, into into setting versus mixed attainment? Is it another kind of fake battle as as inquiry and explicit instruction is? Or, or, or is, is there kind of a definite winner here? Is, is there a better way of doing things? Well, um, the evidence isn't as firm as we would like it at the moment. Um, and the evidence on the effect on attainment suggests that uh, there's a very small effect or no effect. I mean, actually, no, probably no effect overall or a very small effect in, uh, in, 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 in one way or the other. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's an effect for um, uh, high attainers. High attainers do a, a, a bit better out of setting and low attainers do a bit worse. But the, the, the effect size is terribly small. Uh, they're, 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 they're so small as in themselves to be not worth bothering about. The problem, it seems to me, is that setting is often seen as the obvious and normal way to do things. If it doesn't make a difference, if it really doesn't make a difference, why do we use setting? What message are we giving our kids? Actually. If we're if we're if we're grouping them into into attainment groups in mathematics and not in other subjects actually, but what sort of message are we giving them? And when we look at other countries, I mean none of the Nordic countries do do setting really. They don't do much. They don't do worse than us. Some do better. Finland appears in some respects to do better than us. Others do worse. Um, so so the evidence of setting is. It doesn't. It 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 doesn't make much difference really. Although the high attainers might gain and the low attainers might lose out. If you're, I mean, so on balance, I don't know why we don't do more mixed attainment teaching. That said, of course, a move from setting to mixed attainment is a big move. It's a big move for any school because you're going to have to you're going to have to develop new activities. You're going to have to develop new ways of working with with classes. Math teachers are going to have to work in ways that, well, many English teachers uh, work or many history teachers work. They've got the same, the, the same issues. And they, they, I mean, we're, we're not doing better at maths because we do setting. Um, and, um, but it, if you're going to do that, I, I, I guess I, I mentioned Tom Frankham before. I, I, I think when I talked to him about mixed attainment at, at King's Norton, I mean, he was he was using mixed attainment to do something else, to make teaching better. And he saw mixed attainment as a way of creating a dialogue amongst his teachers. For sure, he was interested in mixed attainment for equity reasons as well. But in terms in terms of the day to day work, it was the quality of teaching. Because teachers were teaching all the same stuff, they could talk to each other. They could solve problems together. They could moan together about how something didn't work. 
they could give each other ideas. So uh, it, it's odd that we that we 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 don't we don't do more mixed things. Actually, I think it causes schools problems. If you've got set of if you had mixed entertainment classes, you'd have you'd have more opportunity to sort out teaching. The timetable wouldn't be so problematic. But there isn't a lot of there isn't a lot of uh, of, of difference in terms of actual attainment. That said, uh, within class grouping does appear to have some benefits. Um, so within class group, the research mainly comes from primary schools. That the, there appears to be some benefits from for, for 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 within class grouping. Again, the effect sizes are really quite small, um, and um, the research evidence isn't as um, uh, as, uh, as as strong as one would like. I like that, Jeremy. I'd, I'd not considered. I'm, I'm hoping to get Tom on the show. He's, he's agreed to. We just need to sort a date out. But I, I'd, I'd not, I'd not considered that that it almost forces teachers. Force perhaps isn't the right word, but but compels teachers to to collaborate more because, well, firstly, they're teaching the same thing, and and they're yeah having the same same kind of struggles, same kind of problems. That's 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 an interesting take on it. Was, I, I, li- I, li- the, I like that. There was one teacher in the project who said to us, and he was. He was a he was really really in favour of mixed attainment, and he said it forces me to think about differentiation. Mm. And he didn't mean he didn't want to think about differentiation. Mm. It forced him to do what he wanted to do. And you know when you when you you know teaching is difficult, isn't it? Because there's so many things to think about. Mm. Um, and. Uh, it's easy to get something that you think of as really important. It's easy for it to get lost in in the whole mix. Um, and he felt he did use that word force um, in terms of differentiation. It really forced him to think about difference across the class. And he said, "Well, there's difference in every class, of course. I, I just need to think about it more here." And it put him yes. to think about it. Um, so, so there's a there's a good thing about some aspects of compulsion, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Um, fa- final main question from me, then a, a couple of reflections, and then your big three, and that's <laughs> that's on relevance, Jeremy. And this is you, you've actually kind of requested to talk about this, and it, it's a fascinating one. We we were involved in a kind of panel debate down in London um, at the end of last academic year, and and relevance came up. And and when we were swapping emails to arrange this podcast, uh, you said, and I'm quoting from one of your replies to me here relevance is about two things motivation in the true sense of the word brackets purpose and utility not fun close brackets and addressing application it's not ladders although i think there are good reasons for sometimes using ladders and that's i believe in reference to, to me making the point that pythagoras is often introduced with with ladders leaning against the wall in the guise of it being uh, real life and relevant so w- w- what's your t- what's your take on on, on relevance jeremy well, rather, I mean, if it's not if it's not ultimately relevant, what's the point in teaching maths? Actually, so relevance has to be an important thing that we're thinking about, and we have to motivate the mathematics. We often talk about motivating the kids. We have to motivate the mathematics. We have to show at some point that the mathematics that there's a purpose to doing it. Um, uh, Janet Ainley and Dave Pratt oh, about 15 years ago came up 
um, with um, these notions of uh, purpose and utility to think about relevance. So uh, uh, they were they were working with um, uh, primary kids. They were introducing spreadsheets and early algebra early, early algebra activities, and uh, they talked about utility in terms of the mathematics being useful to doing something that the kids wanted to do. To may, maybe I mean they had a they had an activity with um, uh, those uh, flying those bits of paper that you can twist into objects would twist and fly a bit um, and they, they measured that so there was some the utility was the mathematics that was being used there once you had purpose once you had purpose a reason for doing it and for that activist the kids needed to buy into that they were doing something they were trying to find something out about these 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 flying things um, the, the purpose for doing mathematics needs to be Needs to be, it needs to be uppermost in our minds. Of course, I mean, we can introduce everything with with a particular purpose. Um, um, I I do remember an old um, Edexcel um, uh, textbook, uh, key stage board GCSE textbook, which on the they it, at the beginning of each chapter they had a picture to show its um, uh, to show the chapter's relevance. And in the in the in the higher tier paper on Pythagoras, the picture was of a of of a of an exam hall full of kids obviously doing GCSE. <laughs> <laughs> so, so so I mean at, at some point, of course, exams are important, but but we need to show some sort of um, some sort of meaning for doing the mathematics. And do you think, Jeremy? Do you think that's doable for the majority of maths topics? Because I'm just going through them in my head, like. You know, well, the the classic, you know, everyone goes to to, to kind of adding fractions, but I'm, I'm thinking linear inequalities, uh, straight line graphs, quadratic graphs, solving quadratic equations. Like, do you think there is the majority of maths topics we can introduce with a purpose? Part, of, I mean, the, the purpose, part of the purpose in some some cases can be just to enjoy oneself, but you have to take that seriously. You can't just leave it, or it can be mm. intriguing. So, so there's plenty of activities that are pure in themselves that can be that can be intriguing in themselves. Mm. But each of those, I mean, um, um, uh, Chris Bard has written that. Uh, if you remember back quadratics, Chris Bard has written that uh, kind of paper for Enrich, 101 uses for the quadratic. Uh, so it's, it, it is possible to think about different uh, different uses. That was in response to someone saying the quadratic is useless. Um, so there are, one can take that, that seriously, but to take something like Pythagoras, I mean, we, we have, we have a bit of an obsession with Pythagoras, of course, in this country. Um, interesting. I don't know if you know the area of a trapezium performs the same purpose in Japan. So in Japan, they're obsessed with the trapezium. Right. Uh, there, there's been newspaper articles when they when they talked about reducing the importance of the area um, in um, in the Japanese curriculum. There, there were leaders in the in the papers about the end of civilization. <laughs> so so the, Pythagoras has become to has become kind of overly important in some ways. 
But it is. Isn't, I mean, isn't it wonderful that we can describe the world in this way? Isn't it, I mean, isn't it absolute, and so, so, so part of the purpose can be, can be wonder, but you have to create that wonder. Mm. I mean, Pythagoras, I mean, it expresses, isn't it, isn't it absolutely fantastic that we can do that? That, that our, that, that our representation of Euclidean space, that, that works pretty well in our world, um, is, you can, you can, it always works. I mean, isn't that, isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Uh, so you, so purpose might not be a kind of explicitly utilitarian purpose, although I think it's important to stress some of the aspects of uh, utilitarianism. But it, it, it is, it is, yes, it is. Um, it, it's, a, it can be, it can be a wondrous thing, just as some aspects of history or art or, uh, or English literature can be just worthy in themselves but we've got to create we've got to create that now back to your ladders why are <laughs> ladders important well ladders are important not because we would do Pythagoras with ladders but the ladder is something we can move so the ladder can't motivate the mathematics but once we've motivated the mathematics there the ladder is terribly useful because it's something that one can imagine moving. And that then becomes back to the representations and manipulative things. We can start to see what happens when the ladder moves. And that, that, that's the, that seems to me the value of the ladder. It acts as a kind of cognitive tool for enabling us to move things about, to be dynamic, to start to generalize that, this isn't just one triangle. This is any of these right-angled triangles for which this this uh, this represents. What what can we, what what happens when we move that ladder? We can start to think about relationships. So that's the power of the ladder. But the ladder itself, of course, does not motivate. <laughs> so once we've motivated as a cognitive tool, I love it. The return of the ladder. I love it. I love it, Jeremy. <laughs> people spent years creating these problems and they they were created for a, for a purpose and they weren't created primarily to motivate they were created to enable kids to learn mathematics hmm. so so it's worth looking back I mean I can see why people wanted to do relevance and it and it's very important to show I mean, you've quoted Joe Bowler's paper in, in your book, which is wonderful, by the way. I mean, I don't agree with everything in it, but it's a, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great book, and every every math teacher should should read it. But you, you, I mean, you you cite Joe Joe Bowler's stuff about about um, girls and fashion, spot on. But it's also, I mean, that's that's a failure in terms of in terms of uh, demonstrating or persuading or convincing them that maths is useful to, 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 um, uh, to fashion, because it is. It's useful for the problems you can't solve, not for the problems you can solve. But, yes. but, but of course, it is useful to be able, once you've figured out that it is important for the ones that you can't solve, 
it is useful then to look at the ones you can solve and see whether you can generalize from those problems that you can solve to ones that you find more difficult to solve. Um, Got it. That's that's superb there, Jerry. Um, last couple from me, and then I'm going to hand over to you for your, your big three. Just just a few reflections. Um, this first question might be impossible to answer, but have, having read all the research that you have and been involved in it, is there one single piece or a collection that's, that's kind of most influenced your approach to thinking about education and, and how students learn? Um, well, I, I think... I mean, if, 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 if people haven't read Cathart's book of the concepts in mathematics and uh, in secondary mathematics and science project, Children's Understanding of Maths 11 to 16, that's a great book. Really old, but it's, 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 it's still relevant there. In terms of thinking pedagogically, Madeleine Lampert's, uh, when the, um, when, <laughs> let me remember what it is, when the, Answer is not the answer, and the question is not the question. That that that, that paper about children's talk and uh, Lakatos uh, was a, a wonderful way of thinking about um, working with kids. Um, uh, Madeleine Lampert was a, a researcher. At that stage, she worked in a lab school and she taught one lesson a day, and her research was about um, researching that that lesson Mar uh, it's a marvelous marvelous piece of work oh that sounds I'll super i'll, I'll, not I'll look it. it up and i'll send you it uh, i should have written it down no that'll be great that's that's a superb but superb one that jeremy um can i ask you as well just before we get on to you onto your big three is there an example of something that's important that you, you've changed your mind about over the years well, we talked a bit about procedures i think procedures are more important um, I think telling kids explicitly is is more important than I thought it was. Um, when uh, so many, but I'll I'll tell you when the numeracy strategy came in, I thought it was rubbish and it wasn't. <laughs> it was great. It helped it helped primary teachers think about math. It helped them become better at math, and uh, we made a huge improvement, bigger than anyone else has done in that over that period of time internationally. So uh, so I suppose. I, I suppose that would be um, Margaret Brown's work on um, on the numeracy strategy. Uh, but yeah, superb. And, and last one from me. And um, what do you wish you'd known when you first started, either teaching or thinking about education, that you know now? Almost everything. <laughs> I can't. I mean, I, when I when I when I went into teaching, I thought it was easy. <laughs> and I, I thought it was so easy that it was unproblematic. And of course, it's interesting because it's difficult. So, so yeah. super, super fantastic. Well, it's time to hand over to you now, Jeremy. And what three either websites, blog posts or, or whatever you want, would you direct listeners to? And I will include these links in the show notes. Um, I think um, I, I, I think the Gapminder website is really interesting. If people haven't seen it, it's Hans Rosling's uh, stats site. Um, I, I, I guess this is about describing the world and how the world, um, mapping how the world is, is developing. Um, his argument is that the world is, is getting better. It's not... Um, it's obviously not a perfect place, but we're we're getting we're getting um, generally wealthier, um, which is a good thing. Getting generally healthier and getting generally better educated. But I think what's interesting about that is that it 
it really focuses on how we can use descriptive statistics and how we can um, how we can use uh, proportions to understand the world. And it, 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 if, if you haven't seen it, it's got it's got some marvelous dynamic graphs that describe the world over over the last um, uh, two or three hundred years. Uh, kids to use that need to have some uh, notion of of what's happening in the world and they need to be able to be surprised so of course you need you need you need to be surprised if i was doing uh, say core maths I'd, I'd be using that uh that website a lot uh, it's i mean it's just a it's just a marvelous a marvelous uh, website but lovely lovely graphs that describe the world um uh the second thing that i'd uh, recommend is the is uh, it's actually on twitter um, and um, um, and uh, it's uh, see then see, which is uh, contemplate then calculate, and it's it's full of um, uh, little things to that encourage you to think first and uh, then then try and work things out and I, I think it's so important that that notion of you know Kahneman's thinking fast thinking slow but taking one's time to notice things in and, and notice things in the way that John Mason talks about 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 noticing lovely lovely little activities that uh, that, that do that now I think there's there's an awful lot of opportunity to do that sort of thing in 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 just in mass classrooms get ideas out in, into the open but get kids just noticing about uh about the mathematics so they've got something to to um uh, uh to talk about um and uh, the final one is the uh maths ed uh podcast from the uh, the states it's a long running podcast in which um they have a mix of um Interviews with researchers about a particular piece of work, interviewing interviews with uh, researchers about their careers. So there's some some of the greats on there, like uh, Jo Confrin, um, uh, talking about her her career, which spans what, uh, 40, 50 years, um, and then digests of um, of uh, recent interesting research in uh, in um, mathematics education, and the most the most recent um uh digest has a, a, about a 10 minute slot about um uh, matthew ingles and um, colin foster's paper in the journal for research in mathematics education which analyzes the last five decades in mathematics education research i mean it, it's so interesting it's such an interesting way of doing it they've looked at words in the big journals and the the fact the fact loads and loads of interesting stuff that kind of challenge some of our notions about what our disciplines like, but they they find a drop off in experimental research, a very very significant drop off in 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 educational research. In fact, I think they call it a cliff edge um, from the 1970s. So so 1970s 1980s. Before that, there was experimental research published and it's just dropped off and it isn't that that research that we, that research isn't being carried out but it's not being carried out by maths educators it's being carried out by psychologists and that's a loss to our discipline 
actually, because psychologists know things that we don't know. They know about psychology in a way that, that in the way that mass educators don't. But what they don't know about is pedagogy and translating those ideas into um, into the classroom. And, and and actually, we need to do much more experimental research on on classroom things so that we can advise teachers on 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 what works when, what's likely to work, what may work, um, what might not work. Um, and I, it, it's a it's a fascinating piece of research. But that whole that whole website is uh, that whole blog is a, a podcast is is a it's a it's a it's a nice gentle introduction into some aspects of of NASA's research without having to initially start with the, the papers. Super, that's a, that's a wonderful selection there, Jeremy. Um, fantastic, and I'll put links to all those in the show notes as well as all the papers and, and resources that, that that we've discussed throughout this interview. Um, and all that remains for me to do now is is to thank you, Jeremy. Firstly, for obviously giving up your time to speak to me today, but also just for for, for all the wonderful stuff that you've you've done in your career. Um, I remember, as I say, when I first came across your work uh, along with Dietmar um, doing the ICAM stuff, and that that was a revelation for me because. I think I find Key Stage 3 quite difficult to teach. And you've touched upon this, that, that there's a drop off. And I think that a big reason for that is that a lot of the maths that kids encounter isn't new to them. Um, and for many years, I was kind of approaching it as if it was new, like as if kids had never seen a ratio or never seen a fraction or never seen a decimal. And of course, they've, they've seen it at primary school. And yet it's our job as Key Stage 3 teachers to take these ideas, figure out what kids know about them, get them thinking deeper about them and then build build upon them, build solid foundations so they can build their algebraic knowledge that's going to then get them through to key stage four and beyond. And I think that the the ICAMS lessons, they, I found them challenging, really, really challenging to teach because, again, whether you label it as curse of knowledge or whatever, I was looking at some of them things and I could only see one way to do them. And I thought this this is going to be like a two minute job. And I I, I should have said this during the um, during the uh, bit we were talking about it. But there's one of them um, and I forget which one it is now, but one of this the starter, the starter activities to it is it takes a calculation and it's a big, big multiplication. And then it takes one off uh, one number and adds one onto the other number and asks whether that calculation is going to be bigger or smaller. And I thought, well, God, it's obvious that. And, <laughs> but it took an entire lesson. Like the kids, we had an absolutely brilliant lesson out of it. And I just kind of dismissed it. I thought, well, that's a five minute starter. And it's it's those lessons that they really challenge you thinking. They're hard to they're hard to deliver, but I think they made me a better teacher. So they're they're wonderful, and I'm looking forward to when the the kind of relaunch of ICAMS when when you're allowed to once the trials finish, so so more teachers can be aware of them. So that was my long waffling way of, of thanking you both for appearing on the show and for all your wonderful work, Jeremy. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Chris. There you have it. There was my interview with Jeremy Hodgson. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. I'll tell you what, much like Dylan William and Colin Foster, I absolutely love speaking to people like Jeremy who've been maths teachers, so they've spent many years working with students, and then they've progressed and moved on to becoming maths researchers because their experience in the classroom just gives them that unique insight that, that we as teachers have 
about the difficulties and realities of working with students, working in different environments, working with teachers and so on. So I, I just thought it was absolutely fascinating to, to speak to Jeremy and, and, and learn about his experiences. And flipping it, there, there's so much to take away from this, but I, I'm just gonna rattle through a few things and then I wanna talk a little bit about my experience with one of one of Jeremy's ICAMS lessons. And um, the first thing is, uh, Jeremy reminded me of a couple of absolute classic um, books and activities. So the first is Maths Inside the Black Box, which is um, kind of the math spin-off to um, Inside the Black Box, the, the seminal piece by, by William, William and Black. Um, and Jeremy co-authored this, and it's brilliant because it's... Um, and if you listen to my second interview with Dylan William, we had a kind of mini argument, I mean, Dylan obviously won it, about the fact that I was arguing that, that a lot of the tools of form formative assessment were kind of generic tools but you needed kind of subject expertise to make them work. And, and Dylan disagreed slightly with this. Well, it reminded me, speaking to Jeremy and doing research for the interview, that the maths inside the black box is math specific formative assessment strategies. It's a wonderful, I don't know whether you'd call it booklet or paper, but I've placed a link to it so you can have a read of that um, in the show notes. I'd strongly recommend you checking it out. It's only a short thing, but it's jam packed full of practical math specific advice. Um, the second thing that Jeremy reminded me of was when he was discussing his favourite failure, he talked about the CAME lessons, um, and in particular the Roofs one, and they're wonderful lessons, um, but again it really brought home to me about the fact that it's it's not the quality of the activity that's going to necessarily determine the quality of the lesson or the learning experience for students. The other key ingredient is the time that the teachers put in, specifically the, the, the amount of time they've thought about the lesson, tried those activities out. And that goes back to what Greg Ashman was talking about. His single biggest piece of advice for new teachers, math teachers, is to try the questions, do all the questions yourself first. Anyway, I found the came a lesson on roofs that Jeremy spoke about and I've placed a link to that in the show notes. It's a classic um, if you want to give that one a go. Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about was storytelling. Jeremy kept coming back to this and I thought it was fascinating. I'd never thought of problem solving as telling stories. Um, and I write about in, in my book um, a lot of what Dan Willingham says and, and uh, also the creator and founder of the TED Talks explain about as humans were predisposed to, uh, to understand and take in stories better because it's part of our evolution. It's cavemen around the campfire and all that kind of stuff. There's, there's something quite cognitively pleasing about the narrative of a story. And again, it's in other subjects, history, you can imagine easily bringing in stories of the great kings and so on, and English is just based around stories, but often it feels quite forced to put it into mathematics. Um, but I never thought of that before. Prob solving problems as stories, I really like that. Um, but Jeremy Matt hit upon a really key point. Um, did, did you pick up on this one? He said that surprise is really important for kids, kids feeling surprised. It's kind of the cognitive shock that I often talk about. But for kids to be surprised, they need knowledge. And I'll tell you what, this is something I've experienced many times myself. I thought I was surprising students with a, with a, with a strange mathematical result that absolutely fascinated me. But if kids don't have the underlying knowledge to appreciate the surprise, 
then it's not going to work at all. And, and again, I write about this in my book, the idea of cognitive conflict. Um, and it's a controversial teaching technique because um, the evidence for its effectiveness is mixed. But one, one piece of evidence that tends to come through is that cognitive conflict tends to work better on high achieve, higher achieving students and lower achieving students because they have the understanding to appreciate the conflict. Whereas lower achieving students, there's a danger that if you show them this false erroneous result, they may actually um, think it's it's the right way of doing something. So I thought that was interesting. Storytelling, but kids, to be surprised, they need knowledge. Um, motivation. This is an area I'm flipping fascinated at. And I'm going to be honest with you. I think I've kind of been blinkered over the last 12 months or so. And I've just said motivation comes from success. If students feel successful, then they're more likely to be motivated. And then therefore they get into this virtuous circle. And whilst I still think that's absolutely true, it reminded me of a lot of the reading I did for the book and my chapter on motivation about the role of the teacher. And I made the point in the book that Often, as maths teachers, we may be the only positive mathematical role model in students' lives. They may have parents, friends, or whatever who say, oh, I was crap at maths, maths is boring. Sometimes they get that from the media and so on. So as teachers, we need to be that positive role model. And Jeremy kind of gave two really practical ways that we can motivate students. The first is being genuinely interested in the mathematics. And that's a big one, being passionate. I mean, if you stand up saying, oh God, we're doing flipping adding fractions again today, it's going to be a dull lesson for, for them and the, uh, for you and the students aren't going to be motivated. So that's the first, being interested. But then the other one was something I've not thought too much about, but I'll tell you what I will be doing now. Take kids seriously. Because Jeremy made the very, very interesting point that off the vast majority of the time students give an answer. There is a mathematical reason behind it. They're not just plucking things out randomly. So take kids and their answers seriously. And that then helps them feel respected, feel involved, and that's going to be motivating. So I enjoyed that. And a couple of things on feedback. I flipping love talking about feedback. And I love that almost kind of paradox or counterintuitive result. Um, that, and Jeremy referenced uh, one of my favorite papers on this one, that feedback is one of the most powerful interventions, but its effect can either be positive or negative. And Jeremy picked up on two really practical things I thought about feedback. The first is feedback at key moments when students have actually learned something. And this, this goes back to those kind of lessons that perhaps don't fit into the mold of kind of explicit instruction, the example problem pairs, intelligent practice that I talk about. I'm thinking more about the lessons that I would now do towards the end of the, the, the learning cycle of a given topic, where there's a bit less teacher and um, direct instruction or explicit instruction from me, and perhaps they're doing one of the Enrich acti activities or one of Jeremy's ICAMS activities, where it's not me stood at the board and student and me modeling and so on it's me kind of wandering around the class the, pro the the mistake I've made there is I'm in kids faces all the time what have you done there what are you doing there oh that's brilliant blah 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 but Jeremy makes the point there that that often it's going to take them a long time to actually achieve something within those lessons and if we keep continually giving them feedback what are we actually feedbacking uh, giving them feedback about and if they, they start to start to notice when we're making this explicit that actually ooh, I haven't actually made any 
explicit progress in the last five or 10 minutes. And sure, they may have been thinking loads of things in their head and it's, it's building those foundations for the big breakthrough to come. But by constantly trying to give feedback to kids, it makes it apparent that actually maybe they're not making progress and that can be quite demotivating. So feedback at key moments whenever a big breakthrough has been made and then celebrate it. I, th I thought that was really nice. And then also feedback before the lesson. And again, this is this is a trend that's coming uh, through more and more. I think Dylan Williams spoke about it. Greg Ashman talk, uh, spoke about it. One of the key things of feedback that often gets missed is that the main role of feedback is for the teacher. It helps the teacher become better informed about how to respond, how to pitch things, how to deliver things, explain things, to get a sense of where the learners are. So feedback before the lesson. And what I love about the ICAMS thing, one of the many things is they have this kind of pre-assessment um, and it's a chance for kids to have a go at kind of an activity. And the teacher takes that in. And as Jeremy says, just five minutes flicking through those means that you can then have a better idea of, as Jeremy said, where your kids are, but also who's likely to say some really interesting things so you can then bring that out in the discussion. Who's got a major misconception so you can think how's best to deal with that? Do I tackle it head on? Is it a whole class thing? Do I do it peer to peer? Do I do it a one-to-one? -one? But having that information before the lesson, particularly in a lesson like the ICAMS ones or, or those ones where it's less about the example problem pair and so on that I describe in the book is so, so, so important. And it's another one of those plan for errors that Doug Lemoff talks about and that I've spoke about at length. So I love that feedback before the lesson, giving students some kind of task that's gonna give you some information, particularly about um, who's got some ideas, who's got some misconceptions, uh, and then you can just draw that out. I thought that was really interesting. Um, the big one for me that I still need to dig into is, the, is this manipulatives. Um, at the time of recording, I'm actually on my way to Oxford uh, this afternoon to, to do an interview with Bernie Westacott, um, who I'm calling the king of manipulatives, um, because I'm flipping useless at them. And one of the reasons that I've been reluctant to use them um, is this exit strategy. I don't know how to move students away from manipulatives. And I thought it was interesting, and um, the, the conversation Jeremy and I had about this, about kids have to see the reason to move away from it. But I need to dig deeper into that. I am a flipping novice when it comes to that. And the final thing before I just dive quickly into a practical thing on iCams is the conversation we had about mixed attainment. And I thought that was a really interesting point that, that Jeremy made. Mixed attainment improves teaching due to forced collaboration. Now that's a bit controversial that, and, and Jeremy uh, himself admitted that the, there's no clear cut evidence about um, w which is better for students and, and is it even possible to even say that. But I thought that was an interesting angle that I'd not considered. That if every teacher is teaching a mixed attainment class, or by default, they're all doing the same activity, and almost they're all going to be, particularly if they've been used to teaching in sets, that they're going to be flipping confused a little bit here. So it kind of forces them to sit together, perhaps in a departmental meeting, because they've all got the same problems and then do these activities and think, how am I going to stretch kids? How am I going to support kids? What questions am I going to ask? What misconceptions may become apparent and so on. As opposed to what often happens, and I've seen this before in maths departments, where if there is collaboration, it tends to be pairing up teachers who teach similar sets. So you get the two top set teachers all, all kind of do some joint planning together. The two uh, bottom set teachers, the two old CD borderline teachers will get together. Whereas this forces everybody, everybody's in the same boat. 
So I thought that was interesting. And I'm going to get Tom Frankham on the podcast because I need to I need to delve more into, into mixed ability following my interview with, with Helen Hindle. And finally, because this is this takeaway is going on long, but there's just so much to think about. I just wanted to reflect a little bit on, on one of the ICAMS lessons. Now, as Jeremy says, these aren't available um, at all, but um, uh, just yet, sorry, for, for everybody to use. But if you go on the ICAMS website, which I've, I've linked to, there's actually some sample lessons and activities that you can look at. But once the whole suite becomes available, I'd strongly recommend them. And it brought to mind um, a lesson I did, and it, I called it the Mysterious Mystical Function Machine. And it's it's one of the, um, the algebra lessons. I think it's the second one. Um, and I won't go into details about the actual lesson itself, um, but it, it's an absolutely fascinating lesson that looks into orders of operations and writing algebra break expressions and so on one of my all-time favorite lessons but what I what I did want to talk about was the the starter and, and I mentioned this briefly um, in the podcast but I couldn't remember the exact numbers and it goes back to what what myself and Jeremy are talking about that you can sometimes teachers can look at activities like this and think well that's a two-minute job you know what, what's the point of even asking that question and that was the case when I looked at this it's called same or different and the starter goes like this look at this expression and the expression is 4 multiplied by 319. So that's 4 times 319. And then the prompt is, what happens if we add 1 to the first number and subtract 1 from the second number? So we end up with 5 multiplied by 318. And the question is, is the value the same or different? Now, what I like about this is, the calculation is quite difficult, four times 319, but it's not too difficult that students can't check it and get that element of surprise. So that knowledge is there, they can do that check. So when I put this on the board, I said, just let's, I, I want your first instincts. What's your first instincts? Is it gonna be the same? Is it gonna be different? And if it's gonna be different, is it gonna be bigger? Is it gonna be smaller? Vast majority of the class, it's gonna be the same. Why is it going to be the same? And then this, this is where it all started kicking off because some kids were like saying, well, it just looks like it is. But then some students were saying, well, if you think about balancing, you put one on one side, you take one on the, take one off the other side. But then it, confusion started to go around the room or discussion started to go around the room because students then started saying, well, one kid, I'll never forget this, said, would you rather have four lots of 319 quid or five lots of 318 quid. And whenever it was put in the context of money, even though that is no different whatsoever than the numbers itself, then kids were like, well, I want five lots of 318 quid. And then I started saying, well, okay, is there any other way of representing this? And students then started looking at drawing rectangles, a four by 319 rectangle and a five by 318 rectangle. And it was just fascinating because we always had that checking mechanism. We could always check it. And it wasn't as if I was withholding knowledge from the students. And I think that's important. The students had as much access to the answer to this as I did if they, if they, were, if they worked it out. And it just set things up beautifully for kind of algebraic operations and, and so on. And it's, yeah, it's just, a, it was a wonderful start. But I tell you what, that was the entire flipping lesson. And it was a great lesson. It was a hard lesson for, for me to teach. I had to be on my toes. I had to make sure that students were, and every, students were involved as much as they could be. I had to simplify problems down. I had to say, okay, well, let's think about four times 
31 and 5 times 30 and so on. And so I had to be really on the ball and I've probably not done enough prep. But I'll tell you what, the next time I taught that lesson, I did that starter, I was much better prepared, much better informed. So a few things from that. Firstly, the flipping wonderful. Secondly, sometimes we think, sometimes some of the things that we think are easy are actually difficult for students, but difficult in a really fascinating way. And it just reinforces what Jeremy says. I should have done, spent more time doing that problem. I should have done it collaboratively. Um, and there, therefore, I would have gone into that lesson a bit better informed. But there you go. Um, I, I hope you enjoyed those takeaways. I'm sorry for kind of banging on too long. And um, all that remains for me to do is to thank three people. Firstly, to Jeremy for giving up his time to speak to me. And um, hopefully we'll get him back on the show at some point um, whenever he's got some results back from ICAMS or some of the many other studies that, that, that he'll be working on um, in the future. Uh, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And a huge thank you to you, my loyal listeners, for keeping on listening to the, this show. And um, if you enjoy it and you haven't left a review on ICAMS, iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from, I'd really appreciate it if you just spend kind of 10, 15 seconds leaving a review. It just helps this podcast uh, become more visible and available to, to all the teachers. It helps them stumble upon it and, and, and find this podcast. So I, I'd really appreciate that. But um, plenty of fascinating guests coming up um, in the future. So stay tuned for that. But for now, you take care of yourselves and bye for now.